you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 138. It's titled, Should You Sell Your Stocks Before Trump Takes Office? I received several emails recently from listeners and members of the Money for the Rest of Us hub who are exceedingly concerned about the incoming Trump administration and its potential negative impact on the economy and financial markets. One listener who is a psychiatrist and worries about the instability of Trump is considering pulling out of the stock market as much as possible, although he acknowledges he can't predict the future. He writes, I keep telling myself we will see, but that probably represents an unconscious bias. The other listener has about half his portfolio in cash and much of the rest in real estate. He writes, I am smart enough to know that I can't time the market, but this is a case where my gut is telling me that Axe is about to fall and I am extremely uncomfortable. Now, they aren't the only people that are uncomfortable. Three professors of psychiatry from Harvard Medical School and the University of California recently addressed a letter to President Barack Obama, which read, Professional standards do not permit us to venture a diagnosis for a public figure whom we have not evaluated personally. Nevertheless, his widely reported symptoms of mental instability, including grandiosity, impulsivity, hypersensitivity to slights or criticism, and an apparent inability to distinguish between fantasy and reality, lead us to question his fitness for the immense responsibilities of the office. Meanwhile, the U.S. stock market has gained 7% since the presidential election. So the question is, should we be reducing our investment risk by selling stocks given the uncertainty regarding the incoming Trump administration? Or should we stay put? We're going to look at that today. Focusing on the excellent book that just came out by Michael Lewis. It's called The Undoing Project. In it, he profiles Nobel Prize winning psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And in the book, he, he, it's about prediction, and it's about how humans make decisions. And one of Lewis's comments is, a prediction is a judgment that involves uncertainty. And the deciding to reduce our stock exposure because we think in our gut the axe is about to fall, that Trump is going to do something dangerous that could impact the economy and the stock market, that's a prediction, which is a judgment that involves uncertainty. And Kahneman and Tversky looked at, well, how do we make these decisions? Here's one of their quotes in the book. In making predictions and judgments under uncertainty, people rely on a limited number of heuristics, which sometimes yield reasonable judgments and sometimes lead to severe and systematic error. A heuristic. This is a rule of thumb. We've done earlier episodes on rules of thumbs when it comes to investing. We're going to look at rules of thumb when we come to making predictions, making judgments under uncertainty. Kahneman Tversky's research showed individuals assess the likelihood of an event 
occurring by comparing whatever we are judging to some model in our mind. We ask ourselves, are current circumstances representative of the particular mental model? Do they fit an existing pattern? Now, much of this is done subconsciously, so this is not a conscious exercise, but their minds, in terms of deciding what to do, we're comparing what's happening today in terms of President-elect Trump, in terms of the economy, and we're searching for mental models. Is there a pattern that it fits? And when we find a match, we can feel in our gut that something is likely to happen or play out in a certain way. Now, this approach comes naturally to us as humans, but there are several flaws in it. First, we suffer from what Kahneman and Tversky called the availability heuristic. The mental models we conjure up for comparison are often based on something we recently experienced rather than being more reflective of a broader sample set. For example, After suffering through the severe bear market and Great Recession of 2008, it was not uncommon in the subsequent years, 2009, 2010, 11, 12, for investors and pundits to be convinced in their guts that incoming financial and economic data indicated an economic recession or bear market was imminent. Kahneman and Tversky wrote, Images of the future are shaped by experiences of the past, of the past. And Michael Lewis goes on to explain, the more easily people can call some scenario to mind, the more available it is to them, the more probable they find it to be. Our minds recalculate the odds in light of some recent or memorable experience. For another example, so Tversky died at the age of 59, and he died of of cancer that started on the skin right around his eye. And I happened to get a sore right above my eye, and the first thing I thought of is cancer. That was the first available image that came to me having just finished reading the book. When we have made up our minds that something is likely to happen, it is often difficult to unhinge that determination. Here's the quote from Kahneman Tversky. Once we have adopted a particular hypothesis or interpretation, we grossly exaggerate the likelihood of that hypothesis and find it difficult to see things any other way. The same with Trump. Once we've decided that Trump could potentially destroy the economy, it's often difficult to unhinge that, and we look for evidence of that. Now, sometimes when we conduct mental comparisons, our mind just doesn't find a good match. Here's Kahneman Tversky again. We often decide that an outcome is extremely unlikely or impossible because we are unable to imagine any chain of events that could cause it to occur. The, def- the defect often is in our imagination. At other times, we too readily find mental matches and determine the likelihood of an event when we shouldn't because the current circumstances are unique and or completely random. They don't fit any mental model, but we readily find one that's available to us, even though the particular circumstances is unique and random. Here's Kahneman Tversky. Each occurrence of an economic recession, a successful medical operation, or a divorce is essentially unique, and its probability cannot be evaluated by a simple tally of instances. 
Yeah, we are always looking for patterns where current data fits our mental model or of what we think will likely occur, even if that outcome is completely random. And here's an example. Take coin tossing. The likelihood of a coin toss coming up heads or tails is 50% each. If a heads occurs four times in a row, it's natural to assume that tails will come up on the next flip. That's because, as Lewis puts it, our stereotypes of randomness lack the clusters and patterns that occur in true random sequences. We, we take sort of this small sample size and assume that this small sample, let's say we could toss the coin 10 times, it'll be five times heads and five times tails and typically won't have long streaks. And we assume that's going to fit the larger pattern. But that's not the case. It's, it's common to have, it can, you can have four or five heads or tails in a row. Tversky and Kahneman say, even the fairest coin, however, given the limitations of its memory and moral sense, cannot be as fair as the gambler expects it to be. We, we expect that the, the randomness never clusters together, but that's what true randomness is. And Lewis gives an example of how Londoners in the Second World War thought that German bombs were targeted because some parts of the city were hit repeatedly while others were not hit at all. Statisticians later showed that the distribution was exactly what you would expect from random bombing. Finally, another thing that we suffer from when, make in, when making decisions is we suffer from something that Kahneman Tversky labeled the hindsight bias. Lewis writes, once something happens, we assign a much higher probability that it was going to happen, not even remembering the low odds we assigned prior. And so we might go into something and say, there's a, just a low probability that, that anything is going to happen bad with the Trump administration. But then if something did happen and we go back, we often think, well, we knew that was going to happen and we assign a higher probability to it. Now, how do these heuristics apply to the foreboding many of us feel regarding President-elect Trump? Trump will be the 44th person to serve as U.S. president. Few of us remember more than eight or nine U.S. presidents in our lifetimes. Consequently, the sample size in our mental model of world leaders is too small to determine in our gut how good or bad Trump will be as president or what his impact will be on the economy and financial markets. The reality is Trump is unique. And the period of time in which he will lead is unique. So we really don't have a mental model to compare him against. No one knows what Trump will do as president. So making investment decisions to buy or sell stocks based on what we think might happen is futile. Instead, we should make investment decisions based on another criteria that Kahneman and Tversky research, regret. How much regret, regret will we feel if markets fall significantly in response to some presidential action and we didn't make changes to our investment portfolio to reduce risk? Or how much pain will we experience if we sell our stocks and markets soar in response to some presidential action? Now, these two listeners of the show that I described, they admit they can't predict the future or time the stock market. Consequently, what they're struggling with is not so much predicting what's going to happen, but determining the level of regret 
they are willing to experience? What's the pain they're willing to, to take? And what price will they pay to avoid that regret? Risk aversion is a fee that people willingly pay to re- avoid regret. A regret premium is how Lewis describes it. Determining our risk tolerance is a process of deciding how much of a premium in terms of performance give up and the associated regret of missing out on, in terms of performance, if if performance skyrockets and we have reduced risk, sold stocks, the market continues to go gangbusters, you know, there's some pain to that. We feel like we've missed out. And so the question is, how much of that pain are we willing to pay in order to avoid the pain of losses? What are the potential losses we could see? Well, the maximum drawdown for stocks, generally, this was during the the Great Recession, was about 60%. And so if we're going to reduce our stock exposure, what we're trying to do is potentially avoid a 60% loss. And, but you're also potentially giving up a gain. And so we're doing risk aversion. We're going to pay a fee, a regret premium, because we want to avoid the regret of losses. But we're going to pay for that by potentially giving up some performance. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com david. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. 
Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Now, what am I doing in my own portfolio in anticipation of a Trump administration? Recognizing that I don't know whether he's going to be a good or bad president. I don't know what his impact is going to be on the economy. Yet, I'm about 21% cash and only about 9% in stocks. Now, I typically don't have very much in stocks because I invest in, in private equity and asset based lending and other asset classes that I can get stock-like returns without as, not as much risk. But even so, I have more cash than I typically have because I, of a recent inflow I got from my former buyout or buyout from my former investment firm. But I'm not rushing back into the market. I'm willing to give up some potential return while I wait and see what happens and then gradually move into the market. As we look at investment conditions right now, December 2016, they're they're neutral. And I'm willing to adjust my portfolio based on market conditions. As we look at economic trends, as we look at valuations, as we look at the level of fear and greed, that's also a form of risk aversion, deciding, well, here's the potential makeup of the market right now, market conditions. I try to be as objective as possible and then make a judgment in the face of uncertainty, deciding, am I willing to give up some level of potential return to protect against pain of losses that, you know, at sometimes appear more likely in the face of higher valuations deteriorating economic trends, or a high level of investor enthusiasm. But we're not there right now. Markets are neutral. We just have a high degree of uncertainty, and it's fine to reduce your stock exposure if you are worried about what may happen, not knowing that that you, you just don't know what's going to happen, but you know you'll feel a very poor, very badly, if markets do fall significantly and you haven't made at least some adjustment. Now, here's something I heard the other day from someone who was quite bearish on the U.S. And he said the U.S. is due for a recession, that the economic recovery has gone on too long and a recession is overdue. And that sent me looking for research that showed, do economic recoveries die of old age? And in February 2016, Glenn D. Rudabush from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco essentially answered that question. Now, can do economic recoveries die of old age? And he talked about sur- sur- this, this science of where they, they are doing math to determine you know, how likely are, are you going to die. And it's called survivability statistics. And so from childhood to around age 65, the report goes, there is only a very modest increase in mortality rates. You're just not likely to die. I calculated it myself. At my age, I have about a 0.3% of dying in the next year, according to the Social Security tables. And I was also on another UK-based website and did a similar analysis. And it found that, you know, I have about a 1% chance of dying over the past over the next five years. Now, here's the thing. I have had three friends in their 50s die or most recently been have a brain tumor and, and essentially have, have weeks to live. Three, right close to me in this area. Now, Ranunas says 
that these clusters can happen. But it's heartbreaking to see that. And in the sense that you're in your 50s or you're in your 40s and to be told you have weeks to live. And it's a scary, it's a scary thing. But when we look at these, these probabilities and back on, on the topic uh, of the San Francisco Fed, as you get older, your, your chance of dying increases. And so as you get over 65, you are more likely to die the next year. In fact, by the time you are 107, the probability of you dying the next year is greater than the probability of you living. So they sort of did the same analysis when it comes to the economy. And what they found is, no, as the economy gets older or the recovery gets older, it's no more likely to to start a recession than it is when it's younger. They say, accordingly, based only on age, an 80-month-old expansion has effectively the same chance of ending as a 40-month-old expansion. Therefore, the current recovery is no more likely to end simply because it is approaching its seventh birthday. It's about six and a half years old, which is longer than average. Now, they did show that prior to World War II, so looking from 1854 to 1938, there, the older the recovery, the more likely it was to die of old age. Now, in their analysis, they showed in any given year, there's about a 23% of a recession starting. And so while we know that recoveries or expansions don't die of old age, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal by Josh Zumbrum, and he kind of looked at that study and he did a great reminder of statistics. Remember that the coin toss I talked about earlier, 50% chance uh, of getting heads and 50% chance of getting tails. And that it's within the realm of possibility of getting four heads in a row. He goes through the statistics for us. The way that it works is you you do you multiply 50% times 50% times 50% times 50%. So for four, we're trying to figure out what's the probability of getting four heads in a row. And you do that math, and it's about 6.25% probability. In other words, a 94% chance of flipping at least one head when you do it four times. That same analysis can apply to a recession. If there's about a 23% chance of a recession and a 77% chance of a continued expansion, then that means, with San Francisco's figures, that after two games of what Zumbrun calls recession roulette, there's only a 59% chance you avoid a recession. That's after after two years. After three years, there's a 46% chance of avoiding recession. And after four years, the San Francisco Fed's odds would imply only a 35% chance of having avoided a recession in all four years. So the longer it goes, the probability of the expansion continuing reduces, but that's simply based on independent statistics, just like a 50-50 coin. That's just how statistics work. And so the Wall Street Journal did a survey that said, well, they asked economists, how likely is it for for there to be a recession during the Trump administration? And given we're six and a half years in, if we get four more years of expansion, the probabilities say no, we're more likely to have a recession 
simply based on the independent statistic, but not because it has to happen. 1991 to 2001 was a 10-year expansion. We could go 11 years, and so we can't say it's dying of old age. We have to look at the objective data. We have to look at PMI data, survey data of businesses, and other early indicators that the economy is slowing, and I don't see evidence of that right now. A few years ago, Daniel Kahneman wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and he reviewed a lot of the research that he and, and Tversky did in that book. What I liked about Michael Lewis's book, just came out a couple weeks ago, is it provides the backstory. It talks about the, the relationship between Kahneman and Tversky, their, their, how they, they, they collaborated together in, in just very, very distinct personalities. And fast, fascinating, fascinating read. Michael Lewis is a great storyteller. I encourage you to get the book. And if you're a person that likes detail, you're curious and, and you want to sort of dive into the details of a lot of the studies that I shared in today's episode. You can get that at the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. Or better yet, sign up for my Insider's Guide. And each week, I'll email you those show notes and a summary article of that week's episode and other valuable content I occasionally share with Insider Guide members, including letting you know when the Money for the Rest of Us Hub will reopen to new members, so you'll be the first to know. So that's at moneyfortherestofus.net, or you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. Amos Tversky, as I mentioned, died young at age 59. He wrote it just a few weeks to live. He said, life is a book. The fact that it was a short book doesn't mean it wasn't a good book. It was a very good book. And I'll end with a quote by Kenko, wrote Essays in Idolists. He's a Japanese Buddhist monk. I've mentioned in some other episodes, he was born in 1283. He writes, if people hate death, they should love life. Should we not relish each day the joy of survival? Fools forget this. They go striving after other enjoyments, cease to appreciate the fortune they have, and risk all to their hands on fresh wealth. Their desires are never sated. There is a deep contradiction in failing to enjoy life, yet fearing death when faced with it. It is because they have no fear of death that people fail to enjoy life. No. Not that they don't fear it, but rather they forget its nearness. Probabilities say if you're under 65, very, very low probability you're going to die in the next year to five years. But it can happen, and it can happen unexpectedly. That's the way the statistics work. And so we have to, to recognize it and live a life respecting that death can come at any time. Hope you have a great holiday season. Next week's episode will be a holiday special. It's a recording I did on things I learned in the in 2016 and investing. So hope you have a great new year and we'll be back with episode 139 after I guess it will be released on January 4th. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.